Do you remember how you felt when you started coming to the States? Like, were you excited or sad or? Excited, excited, not sad, excited, apprehensive. What am I expected to do? What am I, what am I going to do? What, how should I act or how should I, all those other, all those things that you would think of or that I think of for facing something that I've never faced before. But the one thing that really, I think that uh, helped me was that your dad was there. We're Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, Explorers of Identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. We are not trees to be rooted in the ground, held steadfast by the earth, not to be moved. We are the seeds from the oak tree, floating violently in the wind. They were chased from their homes by the threat of the grave and sought freedom through blending. Their mixed race heritage, a mark of every seed and bloodline, would help them pass somewhere else, somewhere new. This This is is the the violence violence of of migration. migration. And welcome to tonight's episode of the Logger Lane Spirits podcast. Hey guys, welcome. This season, uh, Jason and I are exploring all things identity. We'll revisit moments in American history through the lens of our own family's roots and the legacy of the generations that have become before us. And tonight, we'll be exploring the threads that connect violence and migration. To help us explore this topic, we'll be chatting with a special guest, Natividad La Gramada Huff. We'll be indulging in what we have coined a spirit symposium with you all tonight. These days, we think of a symposium as a meeting of experts around a specific topic, but the actual origin of the word comes from the Greek word symponine, meaning to drink together. What are you making, babe? Tonight, our little OB Joyful is the humble Sazerac. It's a Louisiana creation. A New Orleans staple and, in my opinion, one of the simplest and most elegant cocktails. Spirit, sugar, bitters, water, that's it. The ingredients of this drink are incredibly simple. One and a half ounces of cognac or rye whiskey. One fourth ounce absinthe. One sugar cube. And three dashes Peixos bitters. Here is your Sazerac Yvonne. Why don't we uh, get a little more comfortable? Mm-hmm. To family, legacy, and migration. Cheers. 
Cheers. So, uh, what's the verdict? Wow, yeah. wow, that's great. Mm. I, I I love the cognac. Mm. It's delicious and so refreshing. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm I love the bitters. I love the complexity of the that the Peixos adds. This little chestnut colored beauty was invented in 1838 by Antoine Amadie Peixot. Ah, Peixot bitters. Yes, right. He was a Creole apothecary who moved to New Orleans from the West Indies. He was an immigrant. This drink got me to thinking about migration, his personal migration and massive migrations like the Trail of Tears. Coincidentally, the same year this drink was created, the forced removal of 15,000 to 17,000 Cherokee Indians from Georgia that resulted in thousands and thousands of deaths. Almost half didn't make the journey. The Trail of Tears was forced, was Peixos. That wasn't the only forced migration at the time. Kidnapped black Americans were led by slave catchers in Maryland and Virginia on these forced migrations called coffles, either by land or by sea, which ended at such southern slave trading posts as Natchez, Mississippi, and New Orleans, Louisiana. I don't know. It makes me think about how we all got here. It makes me think about your mom and her story. Yeah. I mean, my mom is an immigrant. Uh, she came to the U.S. after meeting my dad. This is for all of you out there, just to let you know, a little secret. Um, not a secret, part of my history. My mom came to the U.S. after meeting my dad during the Vietnam War uh, while he was stationed in in the Philippines. And it's interesting because I am a, I am a combination of, of peoples who came here uh, because they've migrated and also because of people who came here because they— uh, through the force of violence, through being enslaved peoples. And, you know, my dad was trying to find a better path. And so it's interesting that the Vietnam War was actually this way that he, he, you know, it was war that took him out back out of this country. Um, and it was a way for him to get out of Macon, Georgia. And I can't quite remember, you know, I asked my mom about this, you know, was he drafted or did he enlist? But I do know that there's something that he was um, running from. And, you know, as we think about how we, got, how we all got here, you know, my mom is from the Philippines. Uh, she met my dad uh, when she was in college. And so they were cleaning apartments or the houses, or maybe there was a party. You know, there's always that story. How did your parents meet? And I've heard this, I've actually heard this story at least 10 different ways. But what I'm sticking with, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm sticking with is that my mom and her cousin were, you know, trying to make money for school by cleaning apartments. And somehow they came across the place where all of these GIs were staying. And that's where my mom and my dad met. And, you know, in the end, it took me a long time to understand the makeup of my family when I think about my mom and my dad together. But a lot of my mom's cousins married black servicemen. You know, that's what happens when we go to these other countries and we're located there in times of war. You know, I'm interested in seeing what's happening over these past few wars that we've had, all the different kinds of beautiful people that will come mm -hmm. from those from those encounters. Iraqi, um, African. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, but for my mom and for a lot of people in, in, in third world countries, and this is how I think of it, I don't know if it's totally true, but marriage was like one of the ways 
out of the country, you know, at that time. And, and I'm not sure if my mom was trying to escape, but somehow she knew that there was there could be another kind of life for her here in the States. Um, and so and it's funny enough that all of my mom's cousins somehow ended up in Arizona like my mom did. And that's what I grew up with, um, was, is with my mom's cousins, who are actually my second cousins, but I call them my aunties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad at the time uh, was stationed at Luke Air Force Base uh, after the war. And I have memories of when we, we moved to Arizona and then it was time to like go grocery shopping and we'd go to the Luke Air Force Base commissary and there's all of this food. And it was such a fun thing because we'd all pile into the car and there'd just be aisles and aisles and aisles of food. And I don't know why. <laughs> that is such a great memory for me um, as a kid. Maybe it's because mm. I knew we were going to get ice cream or something mm. like that. But it made me think about, um, you know, how we all got here and how, you know, for my dad, to come from enslaved people and then to go into the Vietnam War and how he was treated, you know, being a black man in the v- in Vietnam, coming back to the States. And it wasn't until much later on that he told me that they gave him like the wrong pair of shoes, right? And so he never kind of quite walked straight because um, – because they never gave him the right, right <laughs> the right size shoes. Wow. I, I will say that one thing that I that I do take from my mom with, and I have a lot of respect for her, is in 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 the Philippines you always pay respect to the eldest, and that's one thing that I've learned from my mom, and one of the one of the women whose shoulders I stand upon, um, my mother, is that she always because she's the oldest, she always handles the respect that is due to her with such care and in being service to her family. And as me, you know, being the oldest of three, you know, I've shared this with my husband, Jason, but I'm also sharing it with you, the listeners. That is something that I, that I always hold as a, as something that is sacred that for me as the oldest to always be respectful of my position as the oldest. Uh, And for my mom and my dad with everything that they've gained in, in creating this new life, including with 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 us, the kids. You know, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. My mom's life, her new life had its ups and downs, and a lot was lost in migration, um, at least for me, and especially her language. <laughs> I didn't learn her language. My My dad actually didn't let her speak it in the house. And I wished I'd learned it. I wished by now that I would know. My mom speaks, uh, the the national language in the Philippines is Tagalog. um, And my mom speaks a dialect of it called Warai. So so one day, one day I'll learn it. (laughs) I know. Okay. So um, Jason, what do you think gets lost in migration? A lot, right? You mentioned language. You know, it makes me think about self-identity, how we, how we, uh, how we speak, you know, like what we say is so a part of who we are. And when that gets lost, a part of ourselves, our heritage, right, is gone forever. You know, my wife, Yvonne, knows this. And I'll tell the listeners, I, I was adopted. I was about eight months old when I was adopted. So at first, all I knew growing up, all I really knew was my adopted 
identity. I literally adopted an identity from my adopted family that that raised me and raised me with love and support and concern and care, but it was adopted, right? Every family history has a story. Mine certainly does too, both my adopted story and my biological story. Uh, my adopted story, I'm Jason Delane Lee. That's, that's, that's my name. Our son is Maximo Delane Our son Lee. is Maximo <laughs> Delane Lee. And there's a uh, interesting kind of just family story behind both Delane and Lee. Um, my adopted father, his name was Richard Delane Lee. So I inherited his middle name, which we have then now passed down to our son, Maximo. But Delane wasn't the original name. My, my adopted father was of Norwegian descent and his mother named him after Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So originally his name was going to be Richard Delano Lee. But the O when she wrote it looked like an E. So that just stuck and it became Delane, which is now mine and his adopted grandson's middle name. And who knows, maybe Maximo's son will be a Delane as well. Lee also, uh, they, the, this family line of my adopted father, they were the Enderleys. And as a lot of immigrant families do when they come to the, when they've come to the States, they shorten their names or they change their names. And Enderly became Lee. So <laughs> thus Lee, I became Jason Delane Lee here in, in 2021. I'd say it would go so far to say the tragedy of America, as great of a nation as we are, the tragic elements of America is this loss of culture and the labeling of everything outside of the dominant culture as other. Yeah, I think, you know, you. I think about all the people who came here either by choice or not by their choice. And because their names were changed, you know, because um, it reminds me of our last name, Lee. And it's interesting the way that people might identify me um, when they see that my name is Yvonne Lee and and how much story that they might get out of it because they'll see, oh, she's, uh, she's a black woman, but she looks like she has some, and don't use this word, people, don't ever use the word exotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's... And they might say Yvonne Lee, and she looks like she's black and Chinese or black and something. And and I think to myself that all if if they only knew the steps of history behind the my name Yvonne Lee, uh, and how how that gets lost in translation, and how the, the first thing a person might say is, "Oh, are you part Chinese?" And I would say, "No." And 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 actually in Asian culture, Pacific Islander, Southeast Asian, there's there are so many, many, many different, very specific cultures that we don't all get to experience. Uh, and I do get a little upset sometimes when the first thing that people say is Chinese, because that is the most, that's the biggest touch point that people have with Asian culture, um, in my experience. So in a way, that is a loss of culture for you and me, because our complete identity can't be found in our last name. You know, does that make us other hmm, right what is other right if we get the, if we take the chance to really learn about our neighbors our, our you know right mm-hmm. it makes me think about on my biological side that that's that unknown is my adopted side my adopted identity that i embraced until i started 
researching more and more about my biological history because it, 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 I've, I've met both of my birth parents and I've found their names, right? And this conversation is interesting because it's like, for me personally, because it's like, it took me locating their names for me to get on ancestry.com and plug in their names, thusly finding out more about my biological heritage, which led me to my birth father who was born in Oklahoma. But then on Ancestry, I started realizing there were a lot of individuals further down the family trees who were all from Louisiana, some from Southern Arkansas, but a lot from Louisiana. And I was like, wait a second, Oklahoma, what's this? And so I had to go explore that a little more and and dive into what was happening in Louisiana and in the Deep South in the 1800s. We know our history, right? There was a lot of racial strife in the 1800s in Louisiana, but there were also free blacks. There was a, there was a strong culture pre-Civil War of of a free Black community. Not everybody was enslaved, right? That was an interesting exploration. And you see these uh, successful Black communities getting to a point, there's a recurring theme in American history where successful Black uh, communities get to a point where the dominant culture gets a little bit jealous, right? And they they go on the attack, right? We you see this all the way through American history literally to January 6th, 2021. It's just an interesting exploration. In the 1800s, like I said there was, you know, the you know, the post-Civil War era, the Reconstruction era from call it 1863 to 1877, right? In 1870 there was the ratification of the 15th Amendment. Every state in the South had African-American males being elected during Reconstruction to state Congresses and, 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 and the U.S. Congress, individuals who a decade earlier were enslaved. I remember when you were diving into all that history, and I mean, these are things that I did not learn in elementary school. I did not learn them in high school. I, you know, it wasn't until later. So it was so fascinating to hear about through your point of view, where we had to actually, you weren't originally told that, we had to go in and dive and find out about all these successful ex-enslaved people. I was a history major in college. That, and I wasn't taught a lot of this truth in college. And I specifically studied African-American history yeah, in yeah. college. And so to to find a personal connect to that mm-hmm. was, uh, was, was fascinating. There was a- Grounding. It's very, very, very. Blacks who could in, fully enjoy citizenship the the U.S. It's kind of like we're living through a Reconstruction era movement again today. To go from the presidency of Barack Obama to the presidency of Donald Trump, yeah. now yes. to the presidency of Joe Biden, it's it's really reminiscent. I would assume if anyone was still alive from the 1870s to what's happening right now. Two thousand African American men held office from local all the way up to the Senate. The majority of these individuals were specifically in South Carolina and in Louisiana. With this newfound power, these communities gained power, but then they were faced with, and this leads to violent acts, which forced migrations out of the South. A particular one that I found was on a far, far off family tree branch, a gentleman by the name of Gabriel McGlore, who would have been a great grandfather, no, the grandfather of my great-great-grandmother's 
sister. Her husband was the grandson of Gabriel McGlure, who was lynched on September 5th, 1892 in Marksville, Louisiana. That act, that lynching act led to the movement, the migration, the forced migration of his wife and immediate family on a wagon trail, wagon train from Louisiana to Luther, Oklahoma in like 1893 for survival purposes. Mm -hmm. And that and that does something to you, right? When you realize you're adopted, you're a black man, and then you go back to, wow, this this is the exact way of how I'm connected to history. Right. Yeah. yeah. As a product of an interracial relationship, I was put up for adoption, which was which is another act of a of a migratory purpose out of a family structure and into an unknown. And I think often about like what it took for the, for the for these family members to pack up all their known belongings. Oklahoma wasn't a state back then. It was a territory. Oklahoma wasn't a state until 1907. Phoebe McGlore, Gabriel McGlore's wife was the matriarch of this crew of this clan of this family <laughs> clan that moved from 1893 she passed away in 1906 her gravestone is still there uh on the property where they moved to uh the homestead property where they moved to uh outside of luther next to an uh, abandoned church she passed away in 1906 statehood for oklahoma was 1907 many of these family members then moved to tulsa and we all know this is the hundredth year of what happened in Tulsa yeah. in 1921. What do you know about Tulsa? What do I know about yeah. Tulsa? Well, I mean, I the, the thing that actually makes me upset is that I did not know about Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, anywhere in my education from elementary school to high school to college. It wasn't until I graduated, left college, um, and then documentaries and all kinds of things were, were coming my way where I actually understood what happened in Tulsa, this, you know, self-sustaining, affluent Black community being destroyed by the dominant culture, I'll say white people, because uh, they needed mm -hmm. to be put in their place, that they could not have the things that they had. And 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 thusly, wiping out an entire community of, of folks who might have been the next president, who might have been uh, the, the leaders uh, of our country in so many different and, and beautiful ways. And that this happened in not just in Tulsa, but in so many known and unknown areas, uh, cities, villages, townships uh, across our landscape, both in the North and in the South. We talk about the post-George Floyd reckoning. This reckoning is a post-Civil War reckoning. This reckoning is an American reckoning that we have been doing decade after decade after decade for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I think attaching our identity, right? Like these violent acts, these migrations, these migratory movements, how they shape our identity, how we go from, you know, I, I think about Phoebe McGlure. She was a nationless and a stateless woman. Hmm. Oklahoma wasn't a state. She died before statehood. So she was living in this territory from 1893 to 1906 before she passed away, not really in the United States of America. And that adds a, a different type of impact and lens about who, who do I think I am in this, in this landscape, right? Like 
how am I being received by, mm-hmm. to use their language, the other, right? As I raise my family, as your husband, as I raise, as I help raise our children. Mm-hmm. It, I think it just leads to a, a very interesting conversation that we're having right now. Yes. With our listeners. It's time to introduce our guest. Today's guest is uh, pretty special. Yvonne, why don't you introduce her? Hello, Mama. <laughs> Hi, Mama Nettie. Hi, Hi, everybody. Okay, okay, everyone. My mom is here, uh, and I love my mom. So exciting. We're not in the same room. We can't do it because it's quarantine, but we are speaking to each other. My mom is not only is she a mom, she used to work at the post office. She used to... Her number one job is being a mama and a grandma. She's been uh, professionally, or I guess, yes, being a yoga teacher and teaching herself and teaching our kids even. My mom is very grounded and likes to be mama to other people in my life, uh, which is really awesome. And I learned how to do that from her. I remember when I first met who I I refer to as Mama Natty, and uh, I I was wondering uh, how to what do I say? Because Yvonne and I were dating and I, I didn't know if I should prefer to you, Mama Nettie, as, as Mrs. Huff, as, as, and you said to me, uh, I just remember you said, uh, this is back in the late nineties, you said, just call me Mama Nettie. And, and that has been the case for me ever since. And that's what everybody calls me now. <laughs> yeah. I have to remind them. <laughs> I cannot call her by her first name. But Mama Nettie is also Lola to our children. Yeah, they would never call her by her first name. They don't even know what... The culturalism of, of, of Lola. Oh, yes. Well, just for the folks of you out there, in the Philippines, you never call you know an elder by their first name. I remember when I did that to my uncle Jose for the first time I met him, and he wouldn't even look my way, even though I kept saying, Jose, Jose. <laughs> and so anyway, it's more of the Filipino culture. You don't call somebody by their first name. Okay, so we are here. We've just had a great conversation about immigration. So, Mama, can you tell us a little bit about your migration from the Philippines? You know, what it meant to you, what was happening at the time, how you felt about it? Well, I have the opportunity to migrate here to the U.S. because I met your dad and we got married he was in the he was in the air force so to migrate here we had to go through all those old paperwork and had, in the philippines you hire somebody to 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 make it easier to go through all the paperwork that's needed to get your immigration papers that's how i know it was done in the philippines and that's how that's how i got here was so as a wife of an Air Force personnel, arrived in all oh, flew. I flew space A, stopped in Alaska, and then arrived in Arizona, and had to get used to the hundred plus weather. Where I've never been in a hundred plus weather. <laughs> that was quite a that was quite an adjustment. Yes, but uh, as far as my getting. As far as as 
getting here, getting all those paperwork. Mine was more of uh, the normal way of the getting the paperwork processed, just mm-hmm. because your dad was in the was in the military. Mm. I don't think I knew that you and uh, Yvonne's dad were married in the Philippines. Yeah, we were married in the Philippines. Yeah, we were married in the Philippines first, then we went through with the paperwork and hired uh, hired a company to hired uh, like you have here where you have company here that that helps people with their passports well they have that in the philippines too just as a point of clarification because i mentioned earlier that i feel like there's five different versions of how you and dad met can you can you tell again so was it that you were in school and you were working with your cousin and you were cleaning up an apartment and they were there my cousin, my cousin Romain, you've met her. Oh, She's, yeah. Yeah, cousin Romain was already married to her husband, was in uh, Angeles City. And I went to Angeles City to go to school. And I was staying with them. And part of the arrangement was that I would uh, do the housekeeping for them. Oh. And so and then they were living in an apartment. Got it. And so then dad came over? And that's when I met your dad, when they would have this get-together on uh, on weekends. And yeah, that's how I met, them, met your dad. Ah, the truth shall set you free. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, never had the opportunity to meet uh, James Huff. Uh, and I will always remember uh, asking for Yvonne's, asking you for Yvonne's hand. Mm-hmm. I guess my question, my question there, to, to go back to the to your arrival in Arizona. So you said you went through Alaska. Mm-hmm. I lived in Manila in 1980, and we flew through Anchorage on that's the way there, Anchorage yeah. to Hawaii to the Philippines. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where I stopped in Anchorage. But to me, it was uh, first time I've ever been out of the ever been out of the country and then to arrive in Alaska where <laughs> at that time it was really cold. Well, it was all, I guess it's always cold, but then it was always daytime. Yeah, that's right. During well, the time we were there, it was, the sun never went down. And to go from the Philippines to the cold of Alaska to the desert to Arizona. Of, of Arizona, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Arizona was, yeah, it was, getting used to because yeah you go outside in in may it's already hot and so pick the time to when when i would get out of the house (laughs) right just because it was so hot he was stationed at the air force Force. base at luke yeah at luke air force yeah how long was he stationed there oh he was stationed that that's where he got out i think i already had alvin when he did get out of the when he did get out of the service and then worked for worked for the post office, first as a mailman and then as a mechanic. When he retired, he was a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Did you and he have a, uh, I'm interested in this from my own backstory as well, right? Like I'm, I'm of German and black descent and uh, I'm curious of, of the times in the 70s, early 80s. Did you and he have a lot of conversations about the, transnational, multi-country, multi-racial uh, family that, that you so beautifully created? I don't think we ever had uh, 
conversation about it. Where we were, it was just like a normal thing because we are in this community with mostly uh, military personnel and you have people that are, that are there that are like me having married to a black guy and him and the next house might be uh, another one just like me, but also makes marriage. And then the people that we did also, what to call it, party with or have a get-togethers, there was never a, a mention of being white or black or, I don't know, maybe I just didn't notice it. <laughs> because mm-hmm. for me, it was just, we were all there and it didn't matter what uh, what the color was. It didn't matter how you talk. We understood each other and that's just how I looked at it. Mm-hmm. I think the military aspect of that comes in strong too, right? Like if everyone is, yeah, it's a unifying element, right? Yeah, I I think so because everybody were that we associated with have been somewhere around the world and or or coming from different parts of the country. Do you remember how you felt when you started coming to the states? Like, were you excited or sad or excited? Excited, not sad. Excited, apprehensive. What am I expected to do? What am I, what am I going to do? What, how should I act or how should I, all those other, all those things that you would think of or that I think of for facing something that I've never faced before. But the one thing that really I think that uh, helped me was that your dad was there. So it's, did it. It wasn't anything that, whatever it was, it wasn't anything that I would face by myself. Can't wait for COVID to end so we can do it again. But one of my favorite gatherings is uh, is, is either Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas there in, in Phoenix with you and Alvin and Bibi and your whole family. I know you're the oldest of your the oldest sibling in, in your family. Yvonne has a lot of aunties there in Phoenix mm-hmm. also. Were you the first one to come over? Yes, uh, I think I was the first one to come here. And then after that, I think Romaine was still in the Philippines and then Cora. Yeah. And then Adela and, uh, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. I, oh, and then, no, not them, but uh, cousins in San Diego, they were, they were next. Yeah. But I think I was the first one here. Yeah. They were still in the Philippines when I came. So that was part also being here was that when I was here, it was just me. But like I said, the one thing that made it all easier for me was that your daddy was there. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mama Natty, uh, and sharing so much of your story with us. Um, but I'm wondering now, Mama Natty, are you ready for your cocktail confession? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mama. <laughs> Okay. You, you might have spoken to it a little bit, but we'll go more deeper into it. What makes people uproot their lives? What makes people uproot their lives? Opportunity. Love. I think opportunity goes with looking for a better life. And that also ties up with, uh, for you want to, something that... You want to join somebody that you love. Mm-hmm. 
the worst part is you're trying to get away from something or somebody. Then you go all through all that and approach yourself or approach your family just to get a better life, a better chance at life, better chance of happiness, better chance of for your family. Mm-hmm. I love that. Out, out of um, talking about the the Vietnam War, out of a a, a violent environment, a war. The, uh, mm-hmm. You and he fell in love and started a, a family and and migrated here to the states to to raise that family. That's uh, that's beautiful. Did the Vietnam War have anything to do with like wanting to get out of there, out of the Philippines? No, I don't think so. Um, that wasn't. Uh, that didn't have anything to do with the Vietnam War. Although during the Vietnam War, there was a lot more uh, military personnel in the Philippines. But mm-hmm. as far as the violence uh, that was the war in Vietnam, no, they didn't have anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. I know he uh, was from Georgia. And so yes. it, the, the move to Arizona was specifically for the Air Force Base. He was... Right. Yeah. He was he was from the Philippines. He was stationed to like look Air Force. Hmm. Did your other cousins, you know, in terms of uprooting their lives, they're her cousins, your cousins, but I call them my aunties because <laughs> that's the respectable thing to say. But um, did they leave for those same reasons, you think? Did any of them leave because they were trying to get away from something? I guess we all left because we married military people. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Your Aunt Angie married Uncle your Uncle Douglas and then Cora did too with Bill. Do you, you remember Bill, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, of course. Yeah. So did my cousin um Mercy. She also married Air Force person. So as a yeah, actually that's what happened. For the listeners out there, uh we we all took a, a, a trip to the Philippines after Yvonne and I got married in, in two thousand six. And uh, a quick side story, I, would, I, I think it, this, this connects. It was in 2007 when we took a, a trip to, uh, to Giwan and Human Hoon, and uh, there was a, the fiesta was going on. I just remember a big party, and there was a DJ. And uh, it, was, it was a very big family of, event. It seemed like on Human Hoon there, everybody was, was a family member. And uh, I just remember the DJ pointing out family, family and shout, giving shout-outs. And then he looked directly at me, and uh, he said, we don't know where you're from or what you are, but tonight you're Filipino, and like, I'm, I'm, I'm welcome to I'm welcome to the family yeah. now. That love, yeah. familial, Mama Nadia, I felt this from you the first time I met you when Yvonne introduced me to you, and the welcoming into to the family made a lasting impact in part of me. So, so thanks for that. I'm curious when you know, when you uproot yourself and then you're in a different culture, like how how do you feel like you Rerooted here in the states, you know, in passing along like Filipino culture to me and BB and Alvin, and then to our kids. Like, I mean, I, I guess I have my perspective on what I take from it, but what was kind of like your intention when you are no longer in your your original culture? My intention was to just be where I was and absorb everything, watch and absorb and learn. I guess it's more like your survival instinct Mm -hmm. is that I'm in a new place. I have to adapt. I have to watch. 
I have to absorb whatever it is what, that I need for me to survive, to prosper, to, to, you know, to not so feel like I've been uprooted. Mm-hmm. It's more like I'm here. This is my life. I'm going to do everything I can to make it and live and, uh, and be happy where I was. Um, mm-hmm. I missed all the other stuff that was in, you know, the Philippines, though, having to get together with, uh, you know, with the Filipino, uh, with my family in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. But at that point, staying in the, what I say it is that keeping my mind in the Philippines rather than where I, where I was, mm-hmm. was wasn't going to help me. Right. Yeah. And early on in those years, like when we were all born, how did you, how did you feel like you passed on Filipino culture to us? Or was it just kind of organic? I don't really think I actually did take into or actually planned on, on that. It just came through whatever, whatever I did, whatever was done, whatever I passed on to you. It was just all, I guess, organic or just out of me or out of, just out of making sure that when I'm, I raised you, I raised you guys like the way I was raised. In the Philippines, everybody takes care of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole community that take, take care of, of, of each other, at least where I was, where I was growing up. And mm-hmm. that kind of mentality, that kind of caring is what I is what I still do. Mm-hmm. And so when you guys came along, I didn't have that. But, you know, I still have that feeling that you guys came along that I have to take care of you. There is no, there's no other choice. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. It's, it's just it. You, you know, no matter what, you will be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I've benefited from greatly is, um, the Filipino food, mm-hmm. chicken adobo. You've greatly passed on your chicken adobo, Mama Natty, to uh, to your daughter here, and and it's a staple, weekly staple for us here. <laughs> and I want to I want to just uh, respectfully lean in a little bit more on this, though, so I can see how culture can be passed through. But uh, I'm wondering, was there, you know, Yvonne doesn't speak Tagalog, and I'm wondering, was there a when you first got here or into the '80s? Was there a, a, a conscious or not choice about passing on the language? I don't think there was ever a conscious conscious or unconscious way of not passing on the language. I wasn't surrounded by other people that spoke my language. Mm-hmm. Everybody just spoke English. I was probably the only one that, that was Filipino where we were. And uh, and then when I did when I did see people that uh, the Filipino people was when we went to the commissary. The commissary. Yeah, the (laughs) military store. Yeah. (laughs) Military grocery store is what, uh, you know, is when when I would speak my, when I would be able to, I hear somebody speaking Tagalog or or other Filipino dialect, then, you know, then I would speak it speak it but otherwise there was no other people that uh that speak the speak the filipino language or speak tagalog so and then 
also, your daddy didn't speak the dialect, even though he didn't speak Tagalog, even though he was, you know, he was in the Philippines for a couple of years. Mm. I guess, yeah, no pressure to speak it or no, because uh, everybody just spoke English. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, then you took that one step further and mastered the game of Scrabble (laughs) in English. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty impressive. But I also thought that daddy didn't want you to speak the language. Well, that was, that was too. He didn't understand it. So he didn't, he didn't want me to speak it Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, say this to me and, and teach him how to speak it. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yvonne, how old were you when uh, your Lola came? Mom and daddy, when did your mom come over? Oh, I was in college. She she was in college. She came in 91. Yeah, I just graduated high school and then went to college that fall. I mentioned her right because I, I know she she um, is no longer with us, and I know she uh, wa- got to a certain point when she wanted to go back because she might have known that the the end was coming, and uh, and she wanted to be back in the Philippines. Yeah. Do you? How do you feel about that? You've been here for as long as my wife has been alive. I'm smart enough not to throw out numbers here right now. But uh. <laughs> Well, she's been here longer than she was in the Philippines. <laughs> That's very true. But you have a strong connection for familial, obvious reasons back to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Where is home for you? Is it both? This is home, yeah. Your house is my home. This is my home. Philippines is my home. Mm. All three. All three. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you guys are, I'll be home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can't wait to uh, visit with you in person when it is uh, safe to do so. That would really be nice. Yeah. Mahal kita. Mahal din kita. <laughs> Thank you for visiting with us. Oh. We just, <laughs> we said, I love you. <laughs> she said, I love you too. <laughs> Mama Nettie, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. This has been fun. We migrate with a desire for a better life, for opportunity, for love, for life. To bring what we have to the place we are now. To become seeds floating in the wind. podcast is produced by the Lagra Lane Group. We would like to thank Lagra Lane Spirits co-producers and writers Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Seracy, co-producer Matthew Seracy, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marley, the Launch Guild, and Toby Gad for his original piano improvisation. <laughs>